Let's pray together. Gracious Father, how we love to sing of the victory of Jesus Christ. We love to sing of the mercy and of the forgiveness and of the adoption that has been given us in Christ. It is our great joy, our privilege to come before you this morning with loud singing and rejoicing with grateful hearts for all that you have done for us in Christ. Father, we pray that you would now again open our eyes to behold the beauty of the gospel. Open our minds to comprehend the mercy, the grace that has been revealed in Christ. Open our mouths so that as we leave this place, we may speak what is true and right concerning Christ. That we may be ambassadors for Christ to speak of His love and how all can know Him and follow Him. We pray this in Jesus' good and precious name. Amen. If you have a Bible, please open to John chapter 19, John 19, and we will eventually get to John chapter 19, but this morning we're going to take the long way around the barn. That's the only way I know to go is the long way around the barn, but we will get to John chapter 19 in just a few moments. But before we get there, let me ask you a question. Do you know the first mention of the cross in the Bible? Do you know the first time that the Bible hints at and speaks of the death of Christ? Or perhaps to ask the question another way, when in human history was it first predicted that Jesus would suffer and conquer sin, Satan, hell, and death? Perhaps you may think it was at the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ, but you would be mistaken much, much earlier. Perhaps it was at the baptism of Jesus Christ. No, still earlier. Perhaps it was at his birth in Bethlehem. Again, no, much earlier. Perhaps during the days of the prophets, during the days of Habakkuk. Uh, Ezekiel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, perhaps during those days it was first spoken of that the Messiah would come and he would suffer and die and conquer sin, Satan, hell and death. And to be sure, the prophets spoke of that day and looked forward to the coming of Christ. But again, you would be mistaken because much earlier in Scripture, in fact, the first mention of the cross, the first prediction of the sacrifice of Christ is recorded all the way back in the book of Genesis, in the Garden of Eden, right after Adam and Eve had sinned and rebelled against God. It is found in Genesis 3.15. Theologians call it the Proto-Euangelion. And that is a lot of fun to say. The Proto-Euangelion, which means first gospel or, or first good news or the first announcement of the good news of what Jesus Christ would ultimately come and accomplish. Genesis 3.15, here God says to his foe, his enemy, Satan, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The seed of the woman, this coming deliverer would bruise, would crush 
the head of Satan, delivering a fatal blow to the adversary. And yet Satan would, in the process, bruise his heel. And then, as if to give a graphic picture, an illustration of what was to happen, God then sacrificed an animal to clothe and to cover Adam and Eve. In Genesis 3.21, it says, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin, And clothed them. Now here's the question. Did that covering, did that animal sacrifice in and of itself fully atone for Adam and Eve's sin? Did that animal really cover their shame? Did it really remove their guilt? And of course you know the answer. The answer is no, but it pictured, it pointed forward to what Jesus Christ would ultimately do in laying down his life. And throughout the entirety of the Old Testament, we see this theme of substitution. We see this theme of sacrifice. The Passover lambs were slaughtered every year again and again and again. Each year the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies. He would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. These animals died a death that pictured, that pointed forward to what Christ would ultimately accomplish. They in and of themselves were unable to take away sin, to cover and remove sin, but then everything begins to come into focus. As Jesus comes, as Jesus is out walking, and as John the Baptist sees Him and says in John 1.29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and things begin to come into focus as the Baptist points to a man. A divine man, a God-man, a sinless man as the sacrifice which can fully and finally take away sin. Now in order for any animal to be an acceptable sacrifice to offer unto God, what did it have to be? It had to be spotless. It had, to be, it had to be without blemish. It had to be a good, healthy animal. Otherwise, it was unacceptable to offer unto God. Now, with that in mind, here's a trivia question. What is Judas Iscariot, the wife of Pontius Pilate, the thief who died next to Jesus, and the Roman centurion who watched Jesus die all have in common? What do they all have in common? Text your answer to Matt Vowinkle at 920-901-8576. I'm just kidding. Don't do that, but do text Matt. It, a good time will be had by all. It's my new favorite hobby uh, to, to, to text Matt. But what do these four individuals have in common? Judas Iscariot, the wife of Pontius Pilate, the thief who died next to Jesus, and the Roman centurion who watched Jesus die. What, what, what do they all have in common? They all declared Jesus to be innocent. They all saw his innocence. They all recognized that and spoke of that in some way. Judas Iscariot, after his betrayal of Christ, went back and said in Matthew 27, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. Now, unfortunately, Judas then did the wrong thing. He went out and hung himself instead of repenting of his sin. But nonetheless, he recognized the innocence of Jesus Christ. The wife of Pontius Pilate in Matthew 27, verse 19, we are told of how 
she sent message to her husband saying to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. She seemed to recognize something of his innocence, something of his righteousness. There were two thieves that were crucified on either side of Christ. One mocked him, one ridiculed him, but the other declared, This man has done nothing wrong. The Roman centurion who watched the crucifixion, who saw Jesus die, said in Luke 23, 47, Certainly this man was innocent. Judas Iscariot, the wife of Pilate, the thief on the cross, the Roman centurion, could a group like this ever agree about anything? Yes. Yes, they could agree that Jesus was a righteous and innocent man. But there is at least one more name that we ought to add to our list. And that is the name Pontius Pilate himself. Perhaps more than any individual did Pontius Pilate again and again and again declare the innocence of Jesus Christ. And yet how ironic it is that it was Pilate himself who would then sentence Jesus to death by crucifixion. At least four times, Pilate declares Jesus to be innocent. In John 18, verse 38, it says, Pilate went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. In John 19, verse 4, it says, Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know I find no guilt in him. Then in verse 6, Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. Then in Matthew 27, it says, So Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. Now, why did Pilate feel the need to wash his hands before the crowds, washing his hands of this? Because he knew that Jesus was innocent, that he had done nothing worthy of death. Here's the point. Please note it on your outline. We can and must be absolutely clear about one thing. Jesus is the innocent, sinless, spotless, perfect, righteous Lamb of God. That is, that is who Jesus is. He is the God-man. He is innocent. He is sinless. He is spotless. He is perfect. He is righteous. But there is another question that confronts us this morning. It is a very practical question. It is the very question that confronted Pontius Pilate, and it's this. How will you respond to him? In light of who he is. How will you respond to him? What will you do with Jesus? Please note this on your outline. This morning we're going to witness the sad attempts of a man who tried everything in his power to avoid. To avoid making a decision about Jesus. But Pilate would learn the hard way that neutrality is not an option when it comes to Jesus. You must crown him or kill him. You must crown him or kill him. When confronted with the true reality of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, you will either bow before him and worship him or you will get angry. And you will reject him and you will despise him and his holiness and his right to rule as Lord and King and God. As for Pilate, he knows that Jesus is innocent. He knows that Jesus has done nothing worthy of death. But Pilate 
is in quite the dilemma. If he does what is right and and releases Jesus, he knows that he will upset the Jews. He may very well lose his job, lose his power, maybe even lose his life. Remember all that Pastor Stephen taught us last week about the disaster that Pontius Pilate was, about how time and time again he had made blunder after blunder and had upset the Jewish people and a word had gotten back to Rome and Rome was very displeased with Pilate and one mistake more and he would be ripped of his command. His authority would be taken from him and perhaps he may even lose his life. So here's the deal. Pilate this morning in the text before us makes three calculated maneuvers to try and avoid making a decision for or against Jesus, but they all fail. And in the need, his need to make a decision becomes inescapable. Pilate does not want to make a decision about Jesus, but as we'll see, that's not real life. That's not the way things really work in this world that we find ourselves in. Everyone must make a decision regarding Jesus Christ. You will either bow before Him as Lord and God and Savior, or you will reject Him in favor of some other God, some other idol in your life that promises you satisfaction, but you will make a decision. So with that long introduction, let's look at the text before us. John chapter 19, we're actually going to begin reading at the very end of chapter 18. We'll start in verse 38. John 18, verse 38. Pilate said to him, remember this is in in response now to Jesus' statement that those who are of the truth listen to him. Verse 38, Pilate said to him, what is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and said to them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man. But Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law he ought to die because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all, unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not 
Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and in Aramaic Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. Three calculated maneuvers to try and avoid making a decision regarding Jesus Christ. The first maneuver is this. Please note it on your outline. It's, it's very simple. Pass the buck. Make someone else decide. Make, let's, let's let someone else decide this. I'll say out of it. I don't want to have anything to, to do with it. There are two parts to this. The first part is this. Note it, out, note it on your outline. Make Herod decide. Make Herod decide. I don't want to make the decision. Let's pass it off to Herod. Now, this is not recorded explicitly in John's Gospel, but it is recorded in Luke chapter 23. And it is helpful for us to consider as Luke writes about this situation. You can see these verses on your outline. Luke 23, verses 4 to 8, reads as follows. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. And when Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad. For he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him. And he was hoping to see some sign done by him. I mean, Pilate must have thought, this is my lucky day. Galilean, that's not my jurisdiction. Ship him off to Herod. He's Herod's problem. He's not my problem. The problem is, as Jesus appears before Herod, he says nothing. Jesus has nothing to say to Herod. Jesus is not interested in performing magic tricks and doing miracles to, to satisfy the morbid curiosity of Herod. And mind you, this is the same Herod that had heard for so long the preaching and the teaching of John the Baptist. This was the same Herod who had ultimately rejected John the Baptist and who had him executed, had him beheaded in prison. And I believe in an act of judgment against Herod who would not repent at the preaching of John the Baptist, Jesus has nothing to say to him. If you will not repent at the preaching of John the Baptist, Jesus has nothing to say to you. If you believe that you are self-sufficient and able on your own to manage your life and to successfully satisfy your soul, then Jesus has nothing to say to Herod. So in, in great disgust, Herod ships him back to Pilate, having rendered no verdict. Imagine Pilate's shock and horror when Jesus shows up back on his doorstep. But he's not out of options yet. Note this on your outline. There is another option, another way to pass the buck. Let the people decide. Let the people decide. Let the people choose uh, uh, between Jesus and Barabbas. And as, again, Stephen explained so well last week, a custom had developed. This was a show of good favor, whereby Pilate would release one prisoner 
of the people's choosing. And Pilate knew what had happened. He had heard of the, of the cries of Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus uh, had been welcomed into the city of Jerusalem as a hero. No doubt Pilate had heard these stories. And so he thinks surely with Jesus' popularity the people will choose him. But Pilate is outplayed. Pilate is outplayed. He has not counted on the trickery and the deceitfulness of the, of the religious leaders who gather together a mob and instruct them to cry for Barabbas, who is a notorious murderer and an, and an insurrectionist. And so now Pilate is still left with Jesus, an innocent man, and he has now put a known murderer back on the streets. Things are not going well for Pontius Pilate on this day, but he is still not out of ideas. Be on your outline. Let's consider his second maneuver, and it's this. Let's compromise. Can't we compromise? Let's find some middle ground in this whole situation. Look at what Pilate does in verses 1 to 3 of chapter 19. It says, Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in purple robe. And they came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they struck him with their hands. Please note this on your outline. Jesus is ruthlessly beaten, tortured, and mocked now by the Roman soldiers. And this is most likely the first of two beatings or the first of two floggings that Jesus would receive. He would receive one now and then one later after he was sentenced to death. Now, if Jesus had been a Roman citizen, then he would have simply been tied to a post and beaten with rods by multiple soldiers so that as one gets tired, the other can take over. And then as that one gets tired, then the other one can take over and he would have just been beaten with rods but because Jesus was not a Roman citizen he would have been tied to a post and then beaten with a rod but this rod would have attached to it lots of tassels and at the ends of these tassels would contain pieces of bone and metal and sharp objects so that it would inflict maximum damage and maximum pain upon the skin of the back of the individual being flogged as that skin is just shredded and torn away. And Jesus would have endured this most likely for hours at the hands of the Roman soldiers. And again, you cannot miss the painful irony of this scene here. They put a crown of thorns on his head. They put a purple robe on him. They take turns mocking him, kneeling before him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And of course, they miss the fact that Jesus is not just King of the Jews, but he is King of Kings. And He is Lord of Lords. He is God of very God. But at present, they are entirely blind to this fact. So they beat Him and they mock Him in the worst of ways. Now this begs a very obvious question. If Pilate knows that Jesus is innocent, why does he subject Him to such torture? What is Pilate hoping to achieve here? I think perhaps... Pilate is trying to work out a deal. 
Let's, let's do a little give and take. Let's have a little compromise and meet in the middle. Maybe the crowd, maybe the religious leaders will be satisfied when they see a little blood. Maybe, maybe they will be content to see Jesus beaten and bloody. Maybe this will even evoke a little sympathy for him. And then Pilate can simply be done with the situation. Look at verse 4. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no fault in him. Pilate says again, I find no charge against this man, but look at him. Look, I've gone along with you in this. I find no charge against him, but he's a beaten, bloody mess. He's no king. He's no threat to you. Behold the man. Look at him. Can't we be done with this mess? I've gone along with you. He's, he's a beaten, bloody mess. Can't we now be done? Look at verse 5. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, Behold the man. Behold the man. He's no king. He's beaten. He's bloodied. He's no threat. He's a sad, delusional man. Does this work? Does this compromise, satisfy their lust for blood? No. The religious leaders like hungry lions have developed a taste for blood now and they want Jesus crucified. Look again at verse 6. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. Now, Pilate's words may seem very surprising to us. It almost seems as if he is encouraging the religious leaders to go ahead and just take Jesus and just execute him for themselves. Look, just take him. Just do whatever you want to do with him, but let me be done with this. I want, I want no part of this. You take him and you crucify him. Now remember, Rome had taken away the right of execution. The, the, the Jewish people were not supposed to carry out executions for themselves, but Rome was certainly not opposed to occasionally turning a blind eye as they did to the death of Stephen in Acts chapter 7 when the Jews would occasionally execute one of their own and it seems as if that's what Pilate is encouraging in this moment just take them execute them for yourselves I will turn the other way but I want nothing to do with this but the religious leaders are not so easily convinced they do not want to risk uh, executing Jesus themselves they would much rather manipulate Pilate into doing their dirty work for them So we come to verse 7. The Jews answer him saying, We have a law, and according to that law he ought to die because he has made himself the Son of God. In other words, nice try, Pilate, but you have to do this for us. This man must be executed because we have a law. Most likely they're referring to Leviticus 24.16, which says that one must die for blasphemy. And Jesus, who has made himself equal with the Father, who has claimed to be the Son of God, he must die. Now at this point... This immediately does not sit well with Pilate. Pilate is very alarmed to hear this news. Look again at verse 8. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. All right, Now, if he was more afraid, what was he before? He was afraid. And now he's even more afraid. The panic 
and the anxiety and the worry is just mounting in Pontius Pilate as he is working through this situation. Now, what is causing this? Why is panic uh, surging through Pontius Pilate at this moment? You may think perhaps he's just fearful of losing his job, losing his reputation, losing his power, maybe even losing his life. But I think there's something else going on here. Remember that the Romans were a pretty superstitious bunch. They had a pantheon of gods, which they had mostly stolen uh, from the Greek culture, but they believed in this pantheon of gods, and these gods could at times, if they wanted to, come down and interact with humans and live among humans and even procreate with humans and create this superhuman um, um, creation like Hercules, who had great strength. And so Pilate hears this, and he's a very superstitious man who believes in this pantheon of gods, and so he begins to become very concerned. Has he just had a son of the gods flogged? Has he just had a son of the gods beaten with rods to a bloody pulp and to a bloody mess? Perhaps Pilate is beginning to think, this is more than I bargained for. This is, this, is, this is not what I thought this was. This is turning into something else. Jesus talked to me about his kingdom. He said that his was a kingdom of truth. He acknowledged that he was indeed a king. Could he perhaps be a son of the gods? Pilate is becoming afraid, and understandably so. Look again at verse 9. So he entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. It is not good news when Jesus Christ goes silent before you. Pilate says to him, where are you from? Answer me. Where do you originate from? Tell me about yourself. And Jesus has nothing to say. Jesus is entirely silent before him. Why is this the case? Why is Jesus now silent before him? Why won't he answer Pilate? Well, when Jesus withholds his word, withholds his truth to Pilate, it is a warning and it is an act of judgment against Pilate. Against the same man who had just mockingly asked him, what is truth? And then had walked out before Jesus could even answer. Now you might be tempted to think, Well, that's not very nice of Jesus. It's not very nice of Jesus to stop talking to Pilate, to stop interacting with him. Let me ask you a question. Was Pilate really searching for the truth? Did Pilate desire to love the truth, to submit his life to the truth? Would Jesus really deny the truth to someone who genuinely wanted to know and follow the truth and to walk in the light? No, the fact is Pilate had already made his decision to reject Jesus in an attempt to save his own life and power. Look again at verse 10. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Now, this statement reveals Pilate's pride. Pilate is not a humble man. He tries to, pay the, uh, uh, to play the power card with Jesus. He tries to muscle Jesus and intimidate Jesus into 
answering him and to speaking with him. And to this issue of authority, when Pilate brings up authority, to this issue of authority, Jesus is now willing to speak. Jesus is now willing to weigh in and to help Pilate understand his so-called authority in this situation. Look at what Jesus says in verse 11. Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Here, Jesus finally speaks, and what he says should have humbled Pilate. And it should have caused Pilate to ask more questions of Jesus to seek him out. Now, Jesus' answer essentially has two parts, as, as Jesus answers Pilate here. Essentially, Jesus says to Pilate, Pilate, you need to understand something. You are not the primary mover in this situation. You are not the one with ultimate and supreme authority in this situation. God is. God is sovereign. God is all-powerful. If you have any authority in this situation at all, it's because God has given it to you. And Pilate, you need to understand something else. You're not even the secondary mover in this situation. Because those who have delivered me over to you, meaning Judas and the religious leaders, the religious authorities who should have known and recognized the Messiah, they bear a much greater responsibility than you do in this situation because they should have recognized me as the Messiah. They should have seen me for for who they are. So Pilate, neither are you the primary nor the secondary mover in this situation. You need to understand who's really in charge. And it's not you. This should have humbled Pilate. This should have caused him to ask more questions. And yet Pilate remains Indignant. Now, please note this on your outline. Here, Jesus speaks to both the sovereign element and the sinful human element in this situation. Jesus acknowledges both. And brothers and sisters, that's the world that we live in. We must see and come to grips with both. With both the sovereignty of God, the glorious, wonderful sovereignty of God, and the sinfulness of man. The responsibility of man. We must be a people of faith who rightly say with Joseph in Genesis 50, You meant evil against me. But God meant it for good. We, we must be people of faith who can say with the Apostle Paul, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who love God, for those who are called according to His purpose. The fact is, Scripture repeatedly testifies that God can and will use the sin that He hates to accomplish the plan that He loves. God is so good and so sovereign and so wise that He can use even the sin that He hates to accomplish the plan that He loves. God is at work even though we may not perceive it. God is at work in us and through us even in our darkest of days. Our God is forever on His throne. And He says through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 46 verse 9, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like Me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done. Saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. 
God was at work, even in this sinful situation involving Pilate, involving the religious leaders, working out his glorious plan of salvation that sinners like us, people like us might be redeemed and restored and reconciled unto God and made his very children. So Pilate now, he has tried to pass the buck. He has tried to work out some form of compromise and come to some kind of middle ground. And he has one maneuver left and it is not a good one. Please note this on your outline. His third maneuver seems to be sheer desperation. Just sheer desperation. Let's try anything. After this conversation with Jesus, Pilate grows increasingly desperate. Look at how the first few words of verse 12 read. It says, from then on, Pilate sought to release him. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. Pilate tried and he tried. And he tried some more. We're not told all that he tried, but he, he tried. He, he didn't want to render a verdict on Jesus. He, like so many today, seemed desperate to try to avoid making a decision regarding Jesus Christ. But eventually, Pilate would run out of options. Because the religious leaders would finally play their Donald Trump card. And then they would have him right where they want him. They would pressure Pilate. They would manipulate him, squeezing him in just the right way, in just the the right moment to reveal Pilate's true God, his true idol, to manipulate him to their purposes. Look again at verse 12. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. You know, Pilate, you're not acting like a good friend of Caesar right now. You know, every king who tries to establish his authority is automatically in enemy of Caesar. I wonder if Caesar would be interested to know of your loyalty to this Jesus. This loyalty to this King of the Jews who's causing so much trouble among the people. I wonder if we should send word to Caesar. Tell him about you. Tell him what you've done, Pilate. We could do that. And at that moment, friend, it's checkmate. It is game, set, match, and Pilate is lost. Note this on your outline. The Jews finally appealed to Pilate's true idol, his true God, self-preservation or love of self. Love of self. This is Pilate's true God, who he truly loves himself. Jesus said in Matthew 10:39, whoever finds his whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. It was the Apostle Paul who said in Philippians 1.21, For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But not so for Pilate. Pilate is a man of money. Pilate is a man of power. Pilate is a man of self-preservation. And look at how quickly Pilate now is ready to act upon this statement. Verse 13 says, So when Pilate heard these words, 
He brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at the place called the Stone Pavement and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Suddenly, Pilate is ready to act. Suddenly, Pilate is ready to hand down some official rulings regarding Jesus. Pilate orders Jesus to be brought to this place. This is called the Stone Pavement. This is where official rulings and judgments would be handed down. And again, it is impossible to miss the irony of this situation. As we stand back, as we look at this scene through our New Testament lenses, as we, as we look at this scene as, as informed New Testament believers, we should stand absolutely amazed as Jesus, the eternal King, the one who possesses all authority, the one who will one day return to make his glory and his sovereignty known, this King whom before every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, and yet here at this moment, Jesus humbles himself and willingly allows Pontius Pilate and the religious leaders to pass judgment on him. Why is this the case? Because Jesus loves the Father. And he loves the Father's will and the Father's plan. And brothers and sisters, Jesus loves us. And he is intent on going to the cross to die as the once for all sacrifice for sins that we may be forgiven and may be adopted into his family. Look again at verse 14. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Behold your king. Passover is soon approaching. The morning is beginning to fade away. The afternoon is beginning to appear. Pilate brings Jesus out and no doubt says in an arrogant, angry, frustrated way, Behold your king. But once again, Pilate spoke better than he knew. For Jesus is the king. Jesus is the king. The king of kings and the Lord of Lords, But look at how this is met, how Pilate's statement is responded to. In verse 15, they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. And that is a shocking thing to hear out of the mouths of the religious leaders. That we have no king other than Caesar. As you well know, the Jewish leadership was not a fan of Rome. They were not in favor of of Roman occupation. And yet here, their hatred of Christ leads them to swear allegiance to the very thing that is oppressing them. To the very thing that 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 has come in and that is ruling over them in an oppressive and dominant way. Their hatred of Jesus has led them to actually embrace slavery, to embrace idolatry. And brothers and sisters, this is always the result of rejecting Christ. To reject Jesus is to run off into slavery and into some form of idolatry. 
Now listen, in, in just a couple weeks, we are going to embark upon our Back to Basics series. We're going to take just a couple weeks and review a few of our core values. This is good for us to time to time consider our core values, to remind ourselves of these things, to be, to be refreshed in them. And we are going to consider two of our core values. The first one being this, worship. Worship is our passionate life priority. And we are going to consider on that Sunday what it means to kill idolatry and what it means to live lives of worship unto God in the seemingly mundane and ordinary things of life. Listen, I promise you, brothers and sisters, tomorrow morning as you wake up, although it be Labor Day, you will be tempted unto idolatry. Each and every morning that we wake up, we are tempted to look to something other than Christ. We are tempted to run after something, someone, some idea that promises to fulfill us. And we are tempted to flee and to run from Christ. And in reality, we embrace slavery. And we embrace idolatry. And we run and we turn our backs from Christ. We can make idols out of anything. We can make idols out of pleasure. Idols out of comfort. Idols of success. Idols of fame. Idols of relationships. Idols of school. Idols of work. Idols of free time. Idols of anything. Our hearts are like idol factories. And we can just keep pumping them out. One after another. So what does it look like? To really worship God, not just on a Sunday morning when we are gathered together and we can sing and we can unite our voices to praise God and we can study scripture and we can read together. What does it look like in the everyday kinds of things of life to worship God and to love Christ? Make sure you join us for our Back to Basics series. We will consider worship as our passionate life priority. And then what grows out of that, we will consider fellowship. That fellowship is our collective responsibility. But as we close this morning, I just want to bring three quick things to your attention. Three things that we can all act upon today. In light of what we have seen and heard here this morning from John 19. The first is this. Number one. Brothers and sisters, let us consider again the love of God. Let us see that it is full, complete, determined, and victorious. Remember what we've learned. Pilate is not in charge of this situation. The religious leaders are not in charge of this situation. Here, Jesus in grace and mercy, has chosen to submit himself, to willingly take upon himself this pain, this torture, this mocking, this humiliation in order to fulfill the Father's will, the Father's plan, and to save you, to save me, to save sinners. In love, the Father has planned our rescue, our redemption. In love, Jesus has come and determined to take our guilt and our shame and our punishment. Jesus was arrested, hated, condemned, flogged, beaten, mocked, tortured, crucified, forsaken by God, so that we might know life and joy in His presence. That we may know what it means to be adopted into His family, to become a co-heir with Christ. Listen, in Christ, you are more loved than you know. 
This morning we should consider the love of God. It is full, complete, determined, and victorious. Number two, we should also consider consider our sin. Consider our idolatry. We should see that it is cheap, hollow, miserable, and it is shameful. Sin never satisfies in any lasting and meaningful way. Idols never deliver on the promises that they make. Idols never take away the pain. They never really remove any heartache from life. They only multiply our sorrows, multiply our pain. Your sin lies to you. Your sin lies to you. My sin lies to me. The idols that we are tempted to follow are deceivers. They promise deliverance and lead to more slavery. They promise joy but lead to pain. They promise a good time and leave us with regret and shame and guilt. And there is but one solution. And it is found in Christ. Run to Him. Walk with Him. Learn what it means to delight in Him and to worship Him every day of your life. Eternal life, eternal joy, true healing and forgiveness is found in God. God who knows us. God who created us. God who died for us. So, yes, consider your sin. Consider your idolatry and see that it is hollow, that it is miserable, that it is shameful. And then number three, consider the choice that confronts you today. You must decide what you will do with Jesus. Like Pilate, you must decide. Everyone who comes face to face with the truth of who Jesus is, with what Jesus has done, must decide what to do with him. Will you love him? Will you worship Him? Will you honor Him? Will you walk with Him? Will you follow Him? Or will you push Him off? Will you walk out of here angry? Will you reject His love and reject His grace and His sacrifice? I beg of you to come to Christ today, to follow Him, to know the joy that only He can give. It was Jesus Himself who said in Matthew 11, Come to Me. All who labor and are heavy laden. And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Friend, if you'd like to talk with someone today or pray with someone today about what it means to follow Christ, to walk with Him, to know Him, to be known by Him, in love and in worship and praise, we would love to talk with you after the service. There will be elders available down front and at the door. Please give us the privilege of talking and praying with you about these things. Let's pray. Gracious Father, again, we, as we have sung earlier, we do stand amazed. We stand amazed at your grace, at the love with which you have loved us, Help us now to rightly respond to you in praise, in worship, in trust, in joy, in obedience as we leave here. Father, we thank you for sending your Son to be our perfect Savior, to be our great and faithful High Priest. May we all know in a more full and complete way what it means to walk with you 
day by day. We pray this in Jesus' good and precious name. Amen.